Welcome to another episode of Cyberly. I am your host, Blake Bremley. But on the show, we talk about the attention economy and B2B marketing and how it all fits into the world of logistics. And in today's episode, we got a good one for you. We are going to be talking about what I've personally learned after managing 30 plus websites and how you can build a better website for yourself and your company. And we're going to talk about the logistics of fine art shipping. Really fascinating deep dive into the process of what goes all into shipping fine art and artifacts into museums all across the country. Then we're going to talk about return logistics and e-commerce. Busy holiday shopping season is coming up. So what did the return situation look like? Brian Taylor is going to be breaking that down for us. And then we're going to be talking about the disaster logistics after Hurricane Ian. That's why we didn't have a live Cyberly show last week was because Hurricane Ian came through the state of Florida. I'm located in Florida, so we did not, (laughs) we're not able to do a live show last week. But going to have some information at the end of the show on how the logistics of disaster relief worked in the state and is currently working in the state right now to help, you know, a lot of the victims that are still reeling from Hurricane Ian. But the first topic, let's go ahead and dive into it. And that's what I've learned after managing 30 plus websites, because your website is the only tool that can sell for you 24-7. And if you're managing it internally, a lot of one-person marketing teams are even you know, small marketing teams or just small teams in general, it can feel like a part-time job managing the website. And it really is a part-time job, especially if you're producing a lot of content. So let's review a few things that I have learned after managing 30 plus websites over the course of 10 years, especially in the transportation industry. Now, first, let's talk about the technology side of things. Now, it's super boring, but it's very important. But your hosting, your hosting matters a great deal and impacts the overall user experience and your SEO rankings. So your hosting is a big reason why sites crash and load slow, which is what you will typically experience if you're on one of those super cheap hosting plans, you know, the like five or $8 a month hosting plans that typically means that you are on what's called a shared server. So your website, site is hosted. Think of it as like almost like a file storage system. If you have a bunch of different companies with their file storage systems in one sort of giant Dropbox folder, then the size of one folder can affect the the performance and the functionality of all of the other folders within that one Dropbox account. So thinking of it from that lens, that that's why a lot of these different you know, low tier hosting platforms will give you this, uh, they, they will give you the cheap prices, but like with most things in life, you get what you pay for. So with a lot of, if you're experiencing a slow load time and you're on one of those cheap plans, that's probably why your site is loading very slow. Now there's other factors that can play a role in that as well, but you could use a tool like GT Metrics. It's a free site. You can go to, I think it's gtmetrics.com. You take the URL of your website, plug it into that platform, and you can see how fast your site is loading. Now, it used to be that your site needs to load 100%, you know, in 10 seconds or less. But modern day internet users, especially when it comes to mobile browsing, you really need to aim for three seconds or less for a loading time for your site. Anything around eight to 10 seconds, you really want to get that report 
And if it's over 10 seconds, yeah, you definitely want to get that report and you want to pass it off to a developer that can go into your site and do some optimization and make sure your images are the right size, that your your that certain content is loading before, you know, maybe resource heavy content, uh, things like that, where they can really optimize your site. Also, caching is a, a big issue with websites. You want to make sure that you're caching your site regularly. Now, speaking of, you know, load times and caching and all of that stuff, you also want to make sure that you have a CDN installed on your site or integrated into your site. Now, CDN stands for Content Delivery Network. And it pretty much means that if you are located in Los Angeles and you're trying to go to a website that is primarily hosted on a server in New York, what a CDN will do is instead of you, your data talking, you know, from LA to New York, which probably isn't that long in the grand scheme of things, but it does take an extra few seconds for those two networks to talk to each other. But if you have a CDN, a CDN, that content delivery network has servers set up all over the country. And so, or all over the world, depending on, you know, the type of company that you're working with. And so with you, if you have a CDN, then instead that Los Angeles person is going to get your site loaded from a server in Las Vegas, instead of a site that's located in in New York. So a CDN is really important, especially if you are a content heavy site, or if you have a lot of applications running on your domain, um, different TMS software integrations, things like that. If you have that on a subdomain, all of that matters. And having a CDN is the one way to alleviate the extra load time for all of the resources that your site is really commanding when a user tries to arrive there from wherever they're located. So a CDN is really important. And also an SSL certificate. An SSL certificate, it basically tells the web, you know, I'm a legitimate company, I'm a legitimate person, and I do my best practices or you you participate in best practices in order to keep your website secure, um, protecting from bots, protect, protecting from hackers. And so keeping that in mind, the SSL certificate is, you know, sometimes when you go to a website and you can see uh, a kind of a warning sign that says, you know, this site isn't secure. That's typically what it means is that they don't have an SSL certificate installed. And the quick way that you can tell that is usually when you're in a browser and the browser will have a little lock symbol right next to your domain name. So if they have that little lock symbol or they have a domain name that starts with HTTPS instead of HTTP, then that means it is a secure site. Now, if it, HTTP sites are still, you know, somewhat okay to have on the web, but if you're doing any kind of interaction, you know, form fills, uh, requests for quotes, um, especially e-commerce, you absolutely want to have an SSL certificate installed on your site. A lot of different places will offer these for free. You just have to renew it every quarter, which requires additional developer help. But the overwhelming majority of SSL certificates last for a year. If you're with a provider like a GoDaddy, they will sometimes charge you for three years in order to keep you on their plans for longer. So they'll give you an SSL certificate that's good for three years, when in reality, you really only need one year at a time. And it's pretty much a, a pretty automatic process in order to get that certificate renewed each year or each quarter if you want to go the free route. So that's important. Now, especially for WordPress websites, you want to make sure that you stay on top of updates and plugins. Make sure you have someone that is regularly updating the site, whether it's on a monthly basis or a quarterly basis. I would advise monthly basis, sometimes weekly basis, depending on how feature rich your site is. And so 
make sure that you are focusing on the updates because if you don't update something, especially with a plugin, then that's just a way for you know hackers and nefarious actors in order to gain access to your site. So make sure you have a regular update plan. And usually you can accomplish this with a, you know, a managed agency that is managing your site on a regular basis. They're primarily focused on making those updates for you. And then on the flip side, you also want to make sure that you have someone that you can contact in case of emergencies, especially if you're on, I mentioned earlier about if you are on one of those shared hosting plans, your site can go down much more frequently than other sites if you are on your own plan. But if you're on a shared plan, you have the, you, I've experienced this before where my site has experienced a lot of traffic. It took my site down. It took other sites that were on the shared server down. And so that's where it's, it's sort of a compounding effect after that. So I needed to have somebody in case of emergencies that could go right in and fix the issue and fix what the problem is immediately. So unless you, I would advise two different types of agencies or two different types of companies to help you with this, or maybe you have an internal developer that can help you with it, but you want to make sure you have someone that's updating your site on a regular basis. And then you want to make sure that you have somebody that you can contact in case of emergencies. A lot of times it's going to be the same person that you're going to contact for both, but it's good to have both options because the last thing you want to do when your site is down is you want to frantically find you know, the person who's handling your account. And a lot of times they might have things that are already on their plate that they're already scheduled to do that day. And it's not really worth it for them to drop everything that they have to do in order to take care of your site, especially if you're on one of those cheaper hosting plans. That's why I advise that if you're going to invest in a quality website, invest in a hosting plan that's not the bottom of the barrel offerings. And then also make sure that you have somebody that you can contact for regular updates that's handling those updates for you. And then also someone that you can contact in case of emergencies. So those are the the two big things, especially when it comes on the technology side of things. And then also lastly, I want to add to secret shop your own website. This is incredibly important, especially from a mobile and a desktop experience. You want to make sure that your forms are working, that your social media Media links are working because these are the primary actions that you want somebody to take on your website. And the worst thing that could happen is you are you're working on your site and you figure out that a form isn't working or that a link isn't working, and you have no idea how long it has been that that how long it's been messing up. And so, if you regularly secret shop your own website, you can catch those instances where that happens much more quickly. And then you can create a better user experience for folks that are coming to your site because you want them to complete the forms. You want them to follow you on social media. So it's important that you secret shop your own website, both in desktop and mobile experiences. And even if you know some of the things are working, but you maybe want to see something in a little bit of a different way, secret shopping your own website, and then having a document where you can just write down everything that you like, everything that you want to see improved, um, everything that you want, you know, maybe adjusted a little bit, write down all of those things, that document, and then you can pass that on to your developer agency or your marketing agency, and they can take care of that for you. Now on the marketing side of things, what I've learned is that microsites are much easier to manage and create and launch than a full-blown website redesign. So for a lot of sales folks out there, even a lot of marketing folks out there, if you're going to be going to conferences, if you're going to be going to special events, if you need you know, specialized marketing materials and it's just not in the budget to, or in the framework or in the time period to redesign your site in order to accommodate those needs, 
ask about having a microsite. Now, a microsite is one landing page or it's three to five pages, especially for like a conference, like F3 is coming up. So a, a great communication plan for that would be a microsite, maybe three pages that oh, that's essentially a digital sales brochure that you can hand out and you can allow people to maybe scan a QR code or go to a direct link in order to you know take advantage and see the messaging that is on that microsite. So microsites are way easier because then they don't involve a larger, you know, executive oversight, executive overview, and where things can get complicated anytime more people get involved than technically should be, especially in a website redesign. They want to redo everything instead of just making one simple microsite to achieve one simple goal. So aim for if you want to get, you know, some new digital information, you know, out into the world, wherever you're working, you know, conferences, events, things like that, aim for choosing a microsite over adding additional new pages, which has a lot of like legal and corporate, you know, things that you got to jump through hoops, you got to jump through in order to make those things happen in a realistic time frame. So aim for microsites if you want to get something up quickly and um, for future events. Also, get Google Anal Analytics and search console installed. Make sure you're installing Google Analytics 4 because Universal Analytics, what they've been running off of for years, is going away by next summer. So Google Analytics 4 is the answer to all of the privacy concerns, privacy regulations that have been coming out you know, over the years, GDPR, CCPA, all of those different you know, laws and regulations that are coming through the pipeline, especially here in the U.S. as well. So get Google Analytics for installed on your site and then Search Console. Search Console is a goldmine of low-hanging fruit when it comes to organic SEO and how folks are finding your business. Both of those tools are free and both of those take minimal time in order to integrate into your site. A lot of plugins exist on, you know, not just WordPress, Squarespace, Wix, you know, some of these other website builders that you can directly integrate right away with Google Analytics and Search Console. So just make sure you get both of those added. Then I would say to start with social media, skip the blog, focus on one or two platforms, and then make sure that content appears on your site. Very simple workflow that you could incorporate today is if you're writing LinkedIn posts regularly, especially a text-based post, then you could take that exact same post, copy and paste it right into a blog article on your site. And so that turns into content on your site. And then once you have content on your site, it creates what's called a, a ping to your RSS feed. If you have an RSS feed, which 99% of websites have an RSS feed, then you can set up some additional cool functionality where it's like a, a automatic emails out to your entire audience, your, your entire subscriber base. Um, that's probably one of my favorite automations. I talk a lot about automations on, on here, but automations that make sense. And that is one automation that you can really, really get, you know, a lot of your content distribution nailed down with having, you know, an, uh, a blog post to email notification automation set up. I know that's kind of like a word salad right there, but start with social media repurpose that information back over to your website. And then that way you're creating a resource on your website for folks that are arriving to your site. So let's, uh, after we talked about that, website copy is another big one. Make sure it's about your visitor, not necessarily about you. Keep your accolades and things like that. Keep them mostly reserved to your About Us page or you know some of those high impact pages where trust is really an important option. So make sure that you are focusing on those as well. Um, make the copy about the user, not necessarily about you. And then finally, use real images of your team, of your office. Real photos go a long way. You can spot a stock photo a mile away. So taking photos 
photos with an iPhone, having, you know, employees take photos while they're out at an employee event or a meetup. All of those photos go a long way into making your website stand out from everybody else. People can, can spot a stock photo from a mile away. So you might want to focus on getting some real images, even if they aren't, you know, the most photographer friendly or most photographer, I guess, elite level style that a photographer would bring. Or you can always just hire a local photographer to come in and snap the office in order to make sure that you have those good photos that you can use on your social media and your email campaigns, um, ad campaigns, the whole works. So those are a few of my big tips on the technology and the marketing side of running your business. Because like I said, your website is the only tool that can sell for you 24-7. So making sure that that experience is a, a, a great one for your audience is how you get more conversions on your site and those conversions leading to customers because that's really what it all boils down to is making that experience great for those leads to convert. Now, with all that said, let's go into our next topic and that is the art of fine art shipping. And it's really a, it's a fascinating topic because I was in a museum recently and I noticed these little temperature gauges and we'll get into it in just a little bit, but I wanna go ahead and bring in our, our next guest because I thought that this would be a fascinating story um, for everybody involved. Involved. And it's Ilya Kurnishki. I know I mispronounced that, so apologies. So let's welcome Ilya, in our Ilya, next Ilya. guest, Ilya. Ilya Kurnishki. Can you guys hear me? Is, yes, I can hear you very well. He is the co-founder and marketing director of Fine Art Shippers. And you really have, Ilya, you have a really interesting background because you were building a brand in luxury watches before co-founding fine art shippers. Can you give us a little bit of the backstory on, on how you came to found the company? I actually want to do something first. I want to give you props on whatever you said, because that's basically my first profession. So everything that you were saying about website, SSL, blogs, SEO, all this stuff. Oh, thank you. This is basically, this is, yeah, I have an MBA in marketing management. So one of the things that I specialized in is Website development. I worked a lot with a big company. Uh, it's Beluga Lab. You know, we built a lot of uh, uh, big websites, small websites, lending. So it's uh, it, whatever you were stressing is super, 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 super important. And uh, you didn't sk skip anything. <laughs> you basically <laughs> I, I had a few it. more things that I was going to talk <laughs> I'm, about, but I'm, I'm glad I'm, that you I'm I got the coast Yeah, but one, one, one thing that like resonated super is you need you need an agency. Mm -hmm. If you're managing a business, no matter what it was, you can't slack because today there are so many hackers. There are so many people trying to gain access to your information, trying to just just plainly put the site down. Because they're not people, they're just bots. They're just bots searching all over the net, like what data they collect. And it could be dreadful, like really dreadful. Like we had issues where we had DDoS attacks for like days, like oh, just wow. days. Like people just try, trying to put the site down and, you know, and it's not personal. It's not like somebody trying to like hurt you or anything. It's just literally like bots all over the world going and, you know, they're trying to collect data. They're trying to, you know, <laughs> have, have fun in Feel their own way. So, yep, 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 yep. Well, I so, appreciate the co uh, from you. T I, tell us a little bit about yeah, Fine Art yeah, Shippers yeah. and how you found the company. Well, well the, the, the thing is that uh, I was involved in luxury brands. And then uh, my partner and I, we split up. 
It was about 10 years ago. And uh, my main focus was marketing. I was doing marketing. I was building the website. I was doing promotions. I had a content team. I managed the customer service. And when we split up, uh, I felt like, you know, operations wasn't really, wasn't really my thing. And I wanted to do something else. So I went and did a little bit of more of studies. And after that, you know, <laughs> it was so funny because one of my professors for product management, uh, I told her, what advice are you going to give me if, you know, like, you know, I'm in my late 30s, I'm getting my MBA, uh, what, what advice? And she told me, learn a hands-on business like a real hands-on business because believe it or not 10 years down the line half of these professors are going to be replaced by ai and by automation plainly um market disruption so i figured that you know my dad had a business he was very local he was operating his warehouse out of new york working with only private clients my dad has a background from antique dealer and uh for the last 20 years, he's been doing basic, basic, basically private art handling. That's what I would call it. People would hire him on a personal basis to handle very, very expensive works of art, to pack them, to ship them. He's a partner in a shipping company in New York that's called Elite Cargo Services. And uh, he's been doing services for private people. And when this happened, I came to them and I said that what would happen if I would take it national? Like if I would get involved, I would build the website, I would transfer my team to you. And part of the deal that he said, well, you have to learn the business. You have to learn. You have to start from ground up, from driving to packing to understanding how. And I kind of knew that because, you know, my first job when I was 16 was at a showplace antiques. It's like one of the biggest New York antique centers today. And also my client. So uh, that I worked there when I was 16, 17, 18. So I knew how to handle art. I know how to pack very well. I know how to install, but I had to kind of like do it all over. And, uh, and that's what I did. I mean, I joined him. I worked with him side by side with his guys, with his crew. And I started driving as well. I drove all over the U.S. Uh, I supervise a lot. I go to a lot of big projects because I love it. Because uh, you get to meet gallery owners, museum owners, you get to meet all the top people in the business who need your service. So a lot of times I drive across country, you know, with my partner, with my crew, and uh, I do everything what everybody else does. But at the same time, you know, my passion is marketing. So I'm constantly, you know, like on top of my business, on top of my website. I'm always looking for new ideas, like. It's just little things that you said, like about LinkedIn posting and on RSS. Like we do unique content. Every single platform that we have, like I try to have unique content. So like I'm constantly evolving. I'm constantly looking what you know, Google algorithm is going to uh, AdWords. This maybe add that. Maybe you know what kind of content works. Video content, writing content. I'm always involved with my bloggers, you know, because it, it's just exciting because they need real content. So when I travel, I'm able to get them the real content, 
with the galleries, with the museum owners, with auction houses. So I take like pictures of amazing pieces of, uh, you know, like really amazing art uh, on a personal direct level. And I channel it to them and then it goes into like, whatever, like a pool, general pool. And then they work with that content. So you can say like I'm a co-owner, but I'm also like one of the crew members. You know, I don't differentiate myself, you know, like get, Two days ago, I was doing a huge job in Virginia. I was helping install a very large, like $1,500, no, it was probably like in hundred thousands, but 1,500 pounds, huge stone statue from Zimbabwe. So, and, and I like these, I, I like these things. I really like them, you know. Ilya, um, you're kind of breaking up a little bit here. Um, the the audio is a little bit of, of of touch and go. So hopefully we can we can get you Sorry. back and and hopefully have uh, a, a better signal now? from you. Uh, no, it still sounds. What hold on, I, I think that we will hold on. Let me. I'm, I'm going to send you back to production really quick, Thank and they you. can do some some testing for you. But we actually have. Um, so we'll we'll bring you back on after we get a better you know connection for you, you, so we can hear Thank this you. great story. Um, let's move on to actually to our next guest while we wait for Elia to to get a better connection, so you guys can hear all of the cool stuff because it really is a cool process of doing the fine art shipping. So we're going to get him back on here in just a minute. So let's go ahead and bring in uh, Brian Taylor. He is the founder and CEO of Halfback also located here in in beautiful north florida so happy to have you brian um and and welcome into the show so thank you for coming on yeah thank you for having me and uh luckily we made it through the storm pretty well up here yeah absolutely we, we, we definitely got lucky with that regard um south florida not so much we're going to talk about that you know a little bit later especially with some of the disaster relief logistics that are going on but i wanted to talk to you about the return logistics aspect because your your linkedin bio says you're mission driven on bringing a sustainable return solution to the market to help eliminate the six billion pounds of return goods that end up in landfills annually now it sounds really like an incredible program that you've built How how and why did you get this started up? Yeah, well, yeah, so thank you for that. Um, so I was working previously for a, a home decor brand and as the VP of operations kind of boots on the ground day one, returns hit me, you know, smack in the face that, you know, we're, we're getting six to eight pallets of returns back every day. You know, we're, we're paying to ship oh, wow. these things back. There's a huge carbon impact. And a lot of times it was all for not, right? So, I mean, these items would come back and oftentimes the product was in okay condition, but we didn't have a, really a way to sell that again as tier one goods. So um, that's why you see a lot of, uh, you, know, you referenced the stat on my LinkedIn, 6 billion pounds of returns get thrown away annually every year just in the U.S. because, you know, the channels for these products just aren't that robust. You know, merchants don't have the bandwidth to kind of manage an additional, you know, re-commerce channel. So, you know, that was really kind of what you know, brought about the idea for halfback. So, hey, you know, let's let's create a, a marketplace where we instantly list returns the moment somebody says, you know what, this product's not right for me. It wasn't the right size. I changed my mind, which is really about 85 plus percent of returns are just, you know, mm-hmm. the, the buyer, it falls under a bracket called buyer's remorse. So nothing wrong with the product per se. They just, they, they no longer need it. So let's take this perfectly good product you know, find another buyer for it, offer them a great discount. The merchant saves a ton of money by not shipping the items back. And then, of course, the environment wins. You know, we're not, you know, emitting uh, an additional leg of carbon emissions, shipping these things back to the warehouses. You know, we're keeping product in consumers' hands and out of landfills. And it's really a win-win-win for the new buyer, uh, for the environment, for the merchants as well. 
And so with a lot of the different, I guess, phrasing that I hear around returns, this might sound like a dumb question, but is return logistics the same as reverse logistics? Yes, it is. Yeah, they're, they're interchangeable. Basically, what, what either of those means when you hear the term you know, reverse logistics or return logistics, that's just every step that goes into getting that product out of the original consumer's hands and then back to you as a merchant. So our goal, our, our mission with our platform is we basically eliminate that entire extra leg of returns logistics, reverse mm-hmm. logistics, and turn it into forward logistics, right? So we're keeping this product moving forward and keeping it in consumers' hands rather than sending it back to where it's got to go through this whole value add cycle again. That's super cool because I, there's another phrase that you use. It's called returns re-commerce. Can you break down what all this process entails? Yeah, so returns re-commerce is a it's a term that we've we've kind of coined for this new style. We're, we're kind of first to market with this solution. So, you know, really what the idea there is is you know, re-commerce by itself exists, and that's secondhand sales of goods. Of you've got you know a shirt in your closet, you, you've worn it out, you, you're ready to, to to move on, and you might sell that on a, a traditional secondhand market. But we've kind of paired that into this new idea of returns re-commerce where. You know, we take that, a turn, that return the moment a consumer uh, initiates the return. So they go in through our portal, uh, enter their order and say, hey, I want to return this for this reason. Uh, qualified returns instantly show up for sale on our marketplace for somebody else to come along. Uh, they buy it at a discount, kind of an open box, but it's new in box. So, um, you know, all the product has to meet uh, the merchant's return policy. So tags and tags, um, unworn in the original packaging. So we find a new buyer and then we facilitate that peer-to-peer shipping. So we kind of power that um, that logistics leg of, of getting the product from the returning customer into the hands of the marketplace buyer. Oh, wow. That's so cool. I, I was thinking that you guys were, you know, they, that a merchant, if they got something that needed to be returned, they would just ship it all in bulk to you and then you would relist it on your site. But you actually alleviate that extra transportation cost through this method. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. So we have, you know, in our, our debt kind of a old style versus new style. And yeah, so basically whether you're shipping all your goods back to, there are dedicated returns warehouses and then they serve a good purpose, but um, you still have all of that cost, all of those carbon emissions, all of the, the negative things that happen truly just because you're having to send item all the way back to a kind of a holding point. Uh, so yeah, we're, mm. we're eliminating all that and just trying to get it to go straight from peer to peer. Uh, and kind of eliminate that additional leg of logistics. What happens if the returned item needs to be returned again? Who handles that? Does it go back to your company or does it go back to the original merchant? Or is it just final sale? Yeah, so like like most e-commerce marketplaces, it's final sale right now. You know, and our roadmap is maybe um, some capabilities to kind of continue to keep relisting things within the marketplace so that we do keep stuff in buyer's hands. But, you know, kind of uh, the initial play right now is, you know, Buyers are getting a great deal and kind of in exchange for that, it's, it's an all sales final deal. Um, but we ourselves will never, never take the product if the, um, you know, if there, there's some, is some kind of issue, the customer reaches out, you know, we help with dispute resolution and, you know, we're, we'll, we will work with the merchant if they say that, you know what, um, you know, go ahead and send us the product back and we'll, we'll take care of it from there. But for anything purchased on the marketplace, yeah, it's kind of an all sales final um, kind of a process. Now, now you also sent us an image of what I, I assume is it is your store on on halfback, and that where folks can go and they can just the general public able to go to this store and be able to purchase items from there. You're just managing the back end process of it. Is that how I'm understanding it? Correct. And so we're kind of both. We're kind of back 
back of the house, in front of the house. Um, so we've got the software that powers everything uh, kind of behind the scenes from the uh, return initiation, the, the logistics piece with shipping labels. Um, but we're also the marketplace. So we are halfback.com. That is the marketplace where buyers will go and shop these kind of return commerce goods. That's awesome. I, I, it's a holy, it's a really like a wholly new concept to me, which I think is is super yeah. rad. So it, this also kind of might sound like a dumb question, but are returns only or return logistics, is it or reverse logistics, whichever the phrase that you kind of want to use, but is it only a, a truck thing? Is it only handling, you know, are these shipments only uh, affecting the truckload market? Or are we seeing returns for rail and maritime, um, you know, cargo ships? Are we seeing returns? return logistics and those modes of transportation or is it only in trucking uh for who we're working with kind of the d2c merchants it's mainly trucking mm -hmm. there's really no intermodal play there uh, for some of the larger retail brands i mean they may do a return they may get the return back from their customer and then they may push those returns all the way back to the original manufacturer and those may mm -hmm. go uh, you know via different you know a rail segment or, or potentially even um, over water or air, but you know everything we're doing. It's all D to C. So this is stuff that's you know kind of a uh, U.S. based. Whether it's a 3PL or their own warehouse, they've shipped it out. Now they're kind of trucking it back to their warehouse. Makes sense. Now, now Q4 started this week, and you had said in a Twitter post that while most of the focus is on sales, that more effort needs to be put on returns. Can you break down that concept for us? Yes, yeah, so, I mean Q4. Obviously, the, uh, the the shining stars there, your sales and your marketing marketing team. Everyone's getting ready for kind of that Black Friday, Cyber Monday, big retail push. Um, but you know the traditional e-commerce return rate is it averages twenty percent, and depending on your product vertical, I mean it can reach forty, fifty percent. So, and that increases in the holidays, right? We kind of overconsume a little bit. Whether we're you know kind of buying things as we see them, they're on sale. We don't know who we're going to gift them to. Maybe we bought them for ourselves because they're on sale, and then. You know, the holiday period kind of closes out and that introduces this giant wave. You know, some publications, re, you know, call it returns Armageddon or returns Mageddon. So, um, you know, that, you know, if you're talking about anywhere from one in five to, you know, every other package you ship out coming back, I mean, that's that's a massive impact to, to your business. So if, if your focus is only on sales, which is great, we, we all want to grow that top line revenue. But when you've got those contra sales coming back in, all those you know, credits for returns, you know, product you're getting back now, it's, it's out of season, um, you, you're kind of overstocked, you, you stocked up um, for this, the demand, and then you know, a good portion of that comes back. So if you're not putting together a solution for what you're going to do with all the product that comes back, and now you start to see an inventory glut come January, um, and a lot of it's kind of dead stock by the time it gets back to you. So it's, it's great to focus on top line. Obviously, Q4 is, is a big sales period for, for most brands. But you know, if you don't have the back of your house in order, uh, what you're going to do with these, what the, what's the impact not only to your bottom line, but your warehouse, um, you know, it's, it's, it makes for a difficult uh, beginning of the year for most retailers. 100%. And, and, and one thing that I think you would probably help alleviate a lot of those issues is another stat that I pulled from your, your LinkedIn, where it says over 67% of consumers will read your return policy before purchasing and 80% of them are expecting free returns. Is, is offering free returns a concept that is going to fade out because of the cost associated with it? Or is it just simply the, the cost of doing business? I think, I mean, you've seen some big retailers like Zara's, you know, trying to kind of claw back at that. You know, it's free returns if you drop it off in store, but not if you want to you know, send it back through the mail. 
I think it's become table stakes. Uh, I've got another stat in there. Um, you know, 60 to 70 percent of, of kind of shoppers originate on Amazon. So they've already been kind of conditioned, you know, free. Uh, I'm going to get free shipping. I'm going to get free returns. So, you know, when they discover your product or they, they drill out and they end up on your site, they've already come to your site kind of conditioned for this experience. So, you know, I think it's it's a um, it's a reality now that consumers online are going to expect free, uh, you know, free shipping and free return shipping. It's like I said, I think it's become table stakes at this point. And, and then, so that's another area we help out, you know, by not having to pay for return shipping, pay for all that burden labor at your warehouse, keeping that product moving forward. You know, we're helping some of these SMB size DTC customers offer free return shipping because you're not having to pay for all these costs. So uh, I don't foresee, I'd be shocked if we ever saw Kind of free returns shipping go away i think it's only going to increase i think we just you know some of the recent stats are over 50 percent of uh, retailers now offer it and i think that's only going to continue to climb oh wow so i mean that that's an incredible stat with over 50 percent of retailers now for for your solution in particular is it more aimed at the you know the small to medium businesses of the world or is this you know uh, programs that larger retailers are implementing or is this really a, a concept that both smbs and the enterprise companies should should really take advantage of yeah it's across the board i mean everybody obviously enterprise you know there's a huge volume play there so i mean the the savings is exponential both again on an economic and an environmental scale um but the smbs you know we talked to a couple that say hey yeah we love the solution but we're only getting a couple returns back a month you know does it make sense for us and you know when you run through that math of the cost of shipping that product back and again you're kind of your overhead you're talking thousands of dollars uh, in savings annually, even if you only get a couple of returns back. And for you know brands that are trying to get um, kind of um, up and running, kind of get that initial flywheel going, I mean, that's your marketing budget. That's maybe that's your small owner's distribution for your store for the year. So, I mean, the, the savings is there for everybody and kind of the impact to your business. I think it scales with your return. So obviously, you know, kind of your return rate, you know, if, if we go back to that average of 20%, so 20% to a small company is huge. 20% to a big company is also huge. I, I, I'm just thinking out loud here, but I wonder how much of that number is related to clothing. I, I would imagine that the overwhelming majority of returns is clothing related because it doesn't fit right. It doesn't look right. Is that a safe assumption or are there other, other you know, commodity categories that are higher in returns than you would expect? Yeah, so clothing actually skews higher. And so that 20% is kind of balanced out between, you know, apparel, footwear, which could be seen return rates up to, you know, 40 plus percent. And then you got hard lines, um, you know, that, you know, maybe they're, um, you know, not as, you know, fluid in terms of, of size and shit, shape and fit and all that. So those kind of come in more of the, that 10 to low teens and they help bring that average down. And of course, your, your apparel type items that and people bracket buy. So, you know, they don't know what size. So they'll buy two different sizes, keep the one they want and send the other one back. So that, of course, drives up uh, the, the return rate and, and that kind of apparel space as well. So whether you're, uh, you know, a large or a smaller company as, you know, sort of we're already in Q4. So you probably should already have a lot of these, I guess, plans in place. But for maybe businesses that don't have a return logistics plan in place, what should they be setting up for this year and in the foreseeable future so they can better manage this process? Yeah. So if you don't have something, I mean, obviously, you know, I would, I would recommend us. But at, at a bare minimum, I mean, you want some type of returns portal that customer can go on and initiate the return because, you know, so like some of the stats you referenced earlier, 
the easier it is to return something, the more likely they are to buy. So anything you can do to make that return process as easy for your customer, go ahead and start getting that set up now, um, you know, before you get an influx. And it's going to take a lot of stress off your team, all right? Your, your customer service team, whether that's you or you have people, you know, a team handling that um, or, you know, your, your warehouse, again, to take the strain off of that and kind of, um, you know, shrink some of the burden you have on there. And then go ahead and start thinking about, you know, what, what is your plan for the product that comes back? Again, you know, we would love to go ahead and, and, and sell that for you so you never get it back. But, um, you know, we also kind of realize that, you know, we won't sell everything that goes through the marketplace as much as we would like to. So items are going to come back. So are you, you know, set up and able to handle when they come back? What are you going to do with them? Are you paired up with a, another e-commerce platform or returns warehouse that's going to be dedicated to handling that for you? So kind of think about, um, you know, the, that customer interaction, how's the customer going to initiate the return? How's that product going to get back to me? And what am I going to do what, once we get it? Um, and it even starts before there, you know, I back up when I talk to, you know, kind of back in my operations life, um, you know, kind of breaking it down into kind of, I call it like the three R's, right? So reduce, what are you doing on the marketing side to improve your copy and your content? So you don't get as many returns um, that are just preventable because you didn't have good imaging or good sizing callouts. So, you know, reduce the number of returns, recover it. How are you going to get it back to you? And then re-commerce. What are you going to do with it once it comes back? That's all. That That's super interesting because there's so many different options and you could do yourself such a an, an advantage if you have that plan in place as a retailer. Um, I, I've even experienced a couple companies recently where I ordered from them and instead of me if the items didn't work and instead of me sending the items back to them to return them, they just had me take a photo of them and then just keep them. And they gave me the credit back to my yeah. account, which I thought was super interesting. I'm like, well, what's the stop? I feel like that that's definitely like a lost leader for them. What's to stop, you know, people from scamming that type of a system. But I imagine that there's things, you know, caveats, maybe account monitoring to, to account for stuff like that. Um, but it just seemed weird to me that some retailers are just, you know, saying just keep the merchandise. Whereas if they had a solution like yours, then maybe they could get back a little bit of that money, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good call out of kind of why and why we built this and why returns are such, it's such a problem that retailers would rather you just keep it right than send it back because the margins are so thin that by the time they pay for return shipping and again, their warehouse, they don't have the space, they don't have a channel to do it. You've, you've opened the package, you've ripped through it. Um, you know, they just can't resell it. So they say, you know what, you know, it's a loss for us to take it back. And you'll see some people reference that as a green return, right? You know, just keep it. And you know, the green band, we don't have the carbon emissions of shipping it back, but Really, I, you know, that's kind of, I call it the ostrich with its head in the sand. You know, that's the, the retailer kind of wiping their hands of it. Now you as the customer, you're stuck with it. And, you know, some people may take advantage and say, hey, great, you know, I got this free item. I didn't have to send it back. But if you truly didn't want it, now you're stuck with an item that now you have the burden of, of selling it on, you know, eBay or some other channel, or you have to throw it away because you have no way to get rid of it. So it's really not a, a real great solution, although some people may love it when they end up with some, you know, free stuff, I guess, if you want to call it that. But, you know, from a brand perspective and just kind of an industry perspective, it's really not a, it's not a solution. Yeah, it's, um, it's currently sitting in a donation pile, both from, from two different retailers yep. right now <laughs> that said, just keep the merch and it's sitting in a donation pile so that I, I was a little excited at first, like, oh, I get free stuff, but I didn't want it. So what is the use of it? I guess somebody else can, right. can take advantage of it. All right. Now, a uh, final couple questions. Now you've been in business for almost a year now. What lessons have you learned that you're going to take with you through this holiday season and then holiday seasons to come? 
Oh man. Uh, so many, um, like I said, a lot of the stuff we talked about earlier, you know, there's, there's a lot of focus on, you know, everything we do forward facing. So customer facing, um, and everything kind of back of the house becomes an, an afterthought. So, you know, whether that's, you know, getting set up for, uh, distribution returns, um, you know, I've noticed for us, you know, my experience, both with Halfback and then, you know, my own brand startups and you know, previous uh, in corporate life is, um, you know, don't don't take those things for granted. Don't neglect them to the last minute. They're, they're certainly those things that we like to procrastinate on. And, you know, they're really kind of what that backbone that helps hold the hold the house together. Awesome. Great advice. Great tips. Great insight. Loved having this conversation with you, Brian. Where can folks follow more of your work? Check out Halfback, all that good stuff. Yeah, so halfback.com, so H-A-F-B-A-C-K. Um, that's both the marketplace, and if you're a retailer, um, we've got some links there to, to take you out and um, find where you can download our software. Um, you know, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, um, anywhere yeah, you can find me. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brian. Great conversation, and we look forward right, to, to watching more of this progress. So thank you so much. All right, thank you. Yeah, appreciate it. Take care. You too as well. Now, we still have no Elia. I think he's probably working on um, trying to get connected to a computer, but we're actually getting close to the end of the show. But I did want to share with you one little thing. This actually um, came from a recent museum trip that I went to that sort of, you know, just sparked my interest with going to or trying to find a fine art shipper and what that process looks like. And so I wanted, if production could get that video ready for us, it's actually these little humidity gauges. So they're temperature and humidity gauges that are in a museum exhibit and you can notice them on the screen right now it's just a little gauge that's in the bottom of the of the display of the museum exhibit itself and it has you know a, a temperature monitor and also a humidity monitor and there are certain insurances especially when it comes to shipping art that is required to have these gauges that if it falls under a certain amount then that exhibit that item is taken immediately from the exhibit and it's put into a controlled and a more controlled environment and I thought that that was just incredibly fascinating because you're in, in the middle of an exhibit and you're walking around the museum and you see these little gauges. And so I went up to one of the, the, the people that work at the museum and I said, what are these things for? And that's what they explained is that these little gauges are required for on display for some of the artifacts and antiquities and, you know, paintings and things like that, that are sensitive to temperature fluctuations, also humidity fluctuations that they have to monitor these 24 seven and they even have insurance coverage that cover just in case, you know, these were to fall below a certain, you know, line, then they have to remove the item from the exhibit and put it into a controlled environment in the back of the museum. Then insurance kind of takes over to make sure that the, the item is still, you know, in good condition. And when conditions go back to sort of normalize, then the museum is allowed to place them back into the exhibit. So I thought that that was super fascinating. And hopefully you did too. Now, as we kind of round out the show, I don't believe we're going to have time to have Ilya join us again, but at least you have that little factoid of what, what all goes into fine art shipping, which is if you go to their profile, fineartshipping.com, they have a bunch of stories on there, which is really, really cool to, to see too, where they interview artists and they kind of go into the entire process of what's involved with shipping fine art. And the, the key is, is white glove delivery. So white, go, white glove delivery, where the driver is just as involved in the movement of the goods as you know the, the people that are handling the goods themselves. They have these giant crates that they show on their Instagram page, go over to fine art shippers in order to find their account 
count, but like these giant crates that they put the art in just to make sure that it doesn't damage during the process of moving it from point A to B. A lot of these exhibits all around the world uh, utilize a lot of these different shipment practices along with the gauges that we just showed you. So I thought that that was really fascinating look into how not just fine art and, you know, shipping from private dealer, maybe to another private dealer, but a lot of these different exhibits that show up in museums all across the country, how careful they are with shipping these goods and then monitoring them throughout the entire process with insurance being the most important part of the piece because you have to have separate insurance for the ex exhibition side of things and then also from the transportation side of things. So super cool insight. Um, go check them out. They're, they're on YouTube. They're on Instagram, all that good stuff. Wish we could have Elia join, but um, I think he's facing some internet difficulties. So let's go into our final topic. And that is a little, I, I typically like to end the show with a fun topic, but this one's kind of, it's not technically fun because um, it's about Hurricane Ian, but it is hopeful in regards to the, the people that start to help after disaster hits. I've always been told that, you know, when disaster strikes, look for the helpers. That's where you will find the most inspiration and the most hope. Now, before the hurricane arrived, we're kind of quote unquote blessed in a sense that, you know, a hurricane is really the only natural disaster that you get a heads up before it hits. But even when you get that heads up, sometimes a week in advance, just a couple days in advance, the routes that they predict can fluctuate as we saw with Hurricane Ian last week. And it was rumored to be coming straight up the coast over to Jacksonville. And that's where the fear, you know, on my side of things came in. But it was also rumored to directly make an impact on Tampa. It actually went a little bit further south and it hit Fort Myers and the Naples area, which has completely devastated that entire area. And it involved evacuating around 2.5 million people from South Florida. Some people even evacuated over to, from South Florida, they evacuated and stayed within South Florida and just went to Miami because the hurricane wasn't even projected to go near Miami with obviously the regard of, you know, the outer bands that probably affected, you know, maybe for a day or so of a hurricane affected Miami, but a lot of people did evacuate 2.5 million people evacuated. And so with Florida is unique in that we know hurricanes are a reality, but we also know to keep stock supplies, to have a plan in place, but not everybody can evacuate on time. Not everybody has the means financially or they're able-bodied enough to make that evacuation happen. And so therein lies the realities that you have to deal with any kind of storm that comes through a state is that you can prepare as best you can. You stress about it all week, like I did last week, and the storm could turn and miss you or it can turn and come for you, like the folks in Naples and Fort Myers that are unfortunately experiencing this uh, still today. A lot of folks are without power. The devastation has taken out, you know, and, and it's flattened entire towns. It's taken out in entire roadways. Sanibel Island is probably one of the most gorgeous places in the entire U.S. They, the, they have one bridge going in and out of that island, and that bridge was taken out. It's just, it's, if you're looking at the screen right now, like the devastation that has come from the storm is just something that you can't really imagine until you're seeing some of these photos come out. But during a disaster, there's bound to be a little finger pointing, but I wanted to shout out the helpers because I think that that's where you find the most hope. So the things that stood out to me, you know, ahead of time is especially with the planning, pre-planning when it comes to disaster logistics. And that is the setup of equipment and high impact areas so that you don't have to rely on roads and bridges in order to get equipment where it needs to go. So we have these utility companies staging heavy equipment and machinery in all areas of high impact 
impact in order to restore power quickly. So if you're looking at a photo on the screen right now, you're seeing dozens upon dozens of utility trucks that are in the staging areas in Florida that are, are geared to respond to the storm immediately so they can restore power much more quickly. It's, it's kind of said or it's kind of theorized that you know when a natural disaster hits, it only takes three days for chaos to ensue. So the, the quicker you can restore power, the quicker that you can you know give people back some kind of a normalcy, some kind of way to function, then that is a way to avoid further damage for, for uh, further strife among the community. So I think that staging equipment is just something brilliant that I've seen take place over the last handful of years or so. I'm not exactly sure when that concept started, but it is relatively new when it comes to dealing with hurricanes, is staging that equipment in all areas of where you think that the storm is going to be uh, impacting the most. Then there was another uh, instance where Starlink satellites, you know, speaking of internet, speaking of trying to get, you know, communications and get, you know, information quickly, which also helps to alleviate stress, that is uh, alleviated by Starlink satellites. So they were restoring, it's a satellite-based internet provider. Um, they were restoring internet very, very quickly in order to help the community. Also, T-Mobile had their own community support vehicles, which I thought was really clever, that they have these T-Mobile branded vehicles that can allow you to have self-service. They can allow you to charge your devices. And similar to the utility trucks, they also stage these equipment stage these pieces of you know T-Mobile equipment all throughout the affected areas. Then we have the first responders and the American Red Cross mobilizing volunteers locally and also from all around the United States, which I think is super cool that you know the minute that something like this happens, you have volunteers from all over the country that are flying in in order to help with everything and anything that could be asked of them. Also the Air National Guard doing what they do best and helping to clear a lot of the roadways and waterways you're seeing a few of these images on the screen right now where it's essentially just, you know, clearing a lot of the waterways is one of the bigger things because it's it, these established waterways, not the new ones that exist now because of the storm, but in, the, in these established waterways, they are key in order to, you know, take the debris from those waterways so water can flow back as it normally has. And so the Air National Guard was in there to help alleviate a lot of that debris cleanup and try to get it into somewhere where it's more of a manageable place. Um, but then also one thing that I also wanted to shout out because there's a lot of different charities that are going on. There's One More Child, there's Amazon and Feeding Tampa Bay, which all stepped in. Then also, you know, Colts running back Devontae Price, all of the South Florida teams that have stepped in to start donation projects and just, you know, lending a helping hand. Shout out to all of those people who are offering, you know, additional help as well. But one more thing that I wanted to talk about, because in the age of technology, Big data from hurricanes is starting to play a larger role in how people behave, specifically when it comes to GPS. And they say in the article, with GPS data generated from apps, cell phones, and smartwatches, we know how people are making decisions on a highly granular, granular level. We not only know how and when they make the decision to leave, but where they go, but when they come back. We also have the ability to analyze people's activity levels to those regions, essentially help us approximate the economic recovery after a disaster, which I think is super cool. It's something that I haven't really heard of before when it comes to hurricane relief, is that using big data it's, you know, it's obviously big data with privacy rights is one side of the issue, but on this side of the issue, it can serve as a good. Like I said, in times of hopelessness, look for the helpers. And with all that being said, you know, this ranges from, you know, regular people to companies, but 
there's a few charities that I did want to shout out really quick, and that's the Ian Response Fund. It's a coalition of grassroots organizations that have launched ianresponse.org to address urgent needs of impacted communities. What's great about that charity is that they involve a lot of local charities, so it's sort of a grassroots effort. Then there's a couple other ones, Feeding Tampa Bay. Love that. Just they're part of Feeding America, which is overall probably one of my favorite charities of all time. And then also, of course, Salvation Army, probably the best charity when it comes to having those funds and items that are donated to their organization actually go to the people in need. Salvation Army is one of the highest reputations when it comes to that regard. So hopefully if you have a little bit extra cash, you can help out the residents of South Florida with those three different charities. That about does it for this week's show. We will be back on Freight Waves TV next week, Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Central Time. And I am Blythe Bromhaven. You will see you next week.